Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 81 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Queen Bee, an interview with Laura McLeod. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guest is Laura McLeod. Laura McLeod is a 32-year-old brand strategist, Lyme educator, and apotherapist from Sonoma, California. Growing up, Ms. McLeod always felt sick. She was constantly tired, but the symptom wasn't concerning to her parents because her mother felt the same fatigue. When she went off to Wake Forest for college, Ms. McLeod's friends questioned why she was sleeping so much, and she realized it wasn't normal. After she graduated and started working long hours in advertising, her health started to deteriorate. She was having seizures, passing out, and couldn't eat. After countless failed doctor's visits, where she was told she was simply depressed and anxious, Ms. McLeod put her symptoms into WebMD. It gave her two possible diagnoses, Lyme and mononucleosis. She immediately demanded that doctors test her for Lyme disease. When she finally found a physician's assistant that would, she tested positive. Ms. McLeod was treated with antibiotics, which made her feel worse. Doctors told her that she didn't have Lyme after all, and her parents believed her doctors too. After several failed treatments, she decided to try bee venom therapy. It helped her more than anything else. Now Ms. McLeod has a successful treatment regimen and uses it to help others who are looking to explore this method of treatment. Hey, Laura, and welcome to the program. Hi, good morning, guys. We'd like you to please introduce yourself to our audience, and we'd like you to begin by just first talking about where you live and what do you do. I am Laura McLeod. I currently live in Sonoma, California, and I am a brand strategist and Lyme disease educator and recently turned apotherapist, which means I do bee venom therapy with a newly founded organization between myself and Brooke Gahan called The Heel Hive. We are so excited to hear about your background because you're the first person who has joined us on our podcast and you are our 81st guest to discuss bees and the impact that bees can have on folks uh, who are going through a Lyme disease journey. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, fantastic. I'm pretty excited to spread the gospel. It is some pretty compelling research behind bee venom therapy and I really am just passionate about getting the word out there and hoping to touch as many people as possible. So thank you guys for the platform and I am excited to uh, get talking. So let's talk about how you ultimately got to the place where you are now. Where did you grow up and tell us about what your health was like during your early life? Sure. So I grew up, our home base was San Diego, California. So we always had a house in La Jolla, but my mom was sort of a rolling stone and we traveled a lot. So we lived in a new country every year. And before I was 12, I lived in maybe 15 different countries, but in very rural areas. We were always volunteering. So refugee camps, you know, extreme Amazonian jungle, the Congo, you name it. So it was a pretty colorful childhood. Um, and then I landed in. Connecticut for middle school and high school once I sort of needed to be in school system and was very close to Lyme, Connecticut, which I think is a bit of foreshadowing that we can talk about. What did you know about ticks and tick diseases during that early phase of your life? 
honestly, I did not know anything. It was not top of mind. My parents were not the type to be, you know, helicopter parents. There were no tick checks. There was no mention of it whatsoever. Uh, Once I moved to Connecticut when I was 12, there was a little bit more conversation about it. But now I've gone back as an adult and there's signs everywhere, every single park. There was nothing like that. There was one girl I knew in middle school who had Lyme and she had an IV in class, which is the only reason I knew about it. But it was not top of mind. So when you moved to Connecticut and you finally started to learn about ticks and tick diseases, what did you know? Really nothing at all. Just look out for ticks. They taught us how to remove ticks. I remember doing that in school. I did a lot of horseback riding growing up, so I found them on my horses all the time. I would pull them off of our dogs all the time once we were in Connecticut, but I never found one on myself. No one in my family did, and there never seemed to be much of a concern about it, which is troubling. (laughs) So when did you begin to exhibit the symptoms of what you now know to be a tick disease? Honestly, it's a really challenging question, and I cannot remember a time when I felt good. I had symptoms or was symptomatic or was a very sick kid from as long as myself and my parents and my family can remember, and I just got you know, infection after infection, would have months and months of bronchitis, pneumonia over and over again, um, but it was often dismissed because we were traveling or we were in, as I was saying, you know, when you're living in a refugee camp and there's kids who (laughs) are missing limbs from war, it's very easy for your mom to say, oh, you're just tired, you know, don't worry about it, go take a nap. And unfortunately that happened to me a lot. Do you believe that you've had a tick disease for your entire life? Or do you think it's possible that it may have been passed on to you in utero? Or do you think uh, you were bitten by a tick at an early stage in your life? I can't be sure. I think it could be any of those. I think it's a strong possibility that I could have gotten it from my mom in utero. She has all of the symptoms that I have, but she's been exhibiting them since before I was born. And in her own search for answers, what she landed on was, mental disorders and she's been heavily medicated for as long as I can remember and has never been tested for Lyme despite my aggressive prodding I'll just say. How did, how did your health problems affect you? How did they affect you physically and how did they affect you socially during the course of your early life? Yeah I mean I was a really functional kid as much as I can remember. I played three sports. I was a really great student. I was always on honor roll. I just slept a lot. My parents were very permissive and they would say, you know, if you feel like you need to stay home from school and sleep, but you can make it up, you know, that's your choice. That's your prerogative. And I oftentimes did. And I was lucky enough to be independent and intelligent enough to be able to make up my work and graduate on time. But I missed a lot of school. I spent a lot of time sleeping and no one really seemed to worry that much about it. But it has affected my entire life. I can't even begin to imagine everything that I missed out on as a kid, as a teenager, as an adult. You know, I remember falling asleep at prom. (laughs) 
which I don't think is a common 17-year-old memory, but just seemed like normal life for me. How do you think this affected your social life? I mean, you fell asleep at prom. Uh, I mean, do you think your friends were either sick of you being sick? Do you think they didn't believe that you were always sick? How did this affect you and your relationships with your peers? I mean, college was really where it all came to a head because I had roommates and I couldn't really hide it anymore. My, my parents, I was living with them when I was younger. I think because my mom exhibited a lot of the same symptoms, she would, her thing was that she went to bed at seven o'clock every night. So she, I was told over and over again, this is normal. This is just something that is in her family or eventually it became, you're just depressed. But I think I was just, I thought that this was normal and it wasn't until I got to college and my roommates were like, why are you sleeping all the time? And I really had to confront all of that. But I never really had the awareness that I was sick or to put a name on it. I never really was aware enough to even have that discussion with my friends and no one really asked me. I just pushed through. I eventually started drinking a lot of coffee. And then eventually in high school, when my parents, mostly at my prodding, started looking for answers a little bit more, I was put on Adderall, which certainly puts a little pep in your step, but uh, also very certainly masked my symptoms for a long time. So what changed when you were in college other than living with other people? Were, were, were your health conditions developing negatively and therefore you couldn't hide it anymore? Or was it just a change of scenery and living with other people? It was a combination of both. The change of scenery and seeing how quote unquote normal people function in the world. Boundless energy, able to recover, especially when you're 18, 20 years old, um, able to go out all night. And I had a very light class schedule. I did not have classes before noon and I still struggled to get to them because I was so tired and I would go to class. And when I was not in class or playing sport, I was sleeping and just really challenging to have a rich and full and social life when that's your reality. Now, when you went to college, what was your goal? I mean, what profession were you seeking to develop your educational experience to bring you to? Yeah, I was a psychology major. And I think that was driven by my desire to figure out what was going on in high school, you know, with all this fatigue, going to doctors, the conclusion by doctors and my parents, even in Connecticut, was that I was extremely depressed, even though I was quite insistent that I was not and even had several therapists say, you know, we don't think that <laughs> you're depressed. But that I, I really took that to heart. It really became ingrained in me. And I really wanted to figure out, you know, how can I free myself from this depression? <laughs> Which, you know, as I'm saying, it, it's all incredibly sad that that was such a big driver in my life. But I think it's helped me now in uh, moving forward in dealing with so many Lyme patients that I talk to every day. It really helps me to understand a little bit of the psychology behind what this type of illness or just this type of experience of not being believed and misunderstood and how that can um, impact your entire life. 
and all your relationships. So did you graduate from college with a degree in psychology? Yes, I did. Double major. Don't know how I pulled that off with all of my sleeping. Psychology and studio art, which I sort of MacGyvered into an advertising degree. And what did you do after you graduated from college? I went right into the glamorous world of fashion. I started at Vogue, and then I was at Elle as an intern. Pretty quickly realized that the Devil Wears Prada experience was not what I wanted and pivoted into advertising, which was not too much of a leap from fashion, but was a much more democratic profession. How was the devil that you were harboring, meaning your illness, developing as you graduated from college and you moved into the professional world? Again, I think it was just another magnification. You know, moving to college was a bit, or going to college and moving in with other people was a big wake up call. Then moving to New York City right after college and being thrown into this hyper competitive, burning the candle on both ends, you know, work hard, play hard type of culture. I, I think it just, again, became very apparent to me at 20 years old. I was exhausted all the time and I remember distinctly thinking if I'm this tired now I mean 40 doesn't seem that far off now but like what am I going to feel like when I'm 40 I don't understand how these are supposed to be the days of my life and or the time of my life and I was just really tired but you know advertising fashion your peers are young 20 year olds and I would look at them and say how how are you going out after work? I, I just want to crawl home and sleep. Or sometimes I did just crawl under my desk. There's so many nights I slept in my office under my desk um, once I worked in advertising. And, you know, who knows what toll that level of stress and working 100 plus hours a week took on my health and, you know, the Adderall, <laughs> the whole other elements of it. So yeah, it was a pretty steady decline, but it happened very slowly. I had my first seizure in 2010, and I believe I only had one that year, and it sort of increased to the next year and so on and so forth. So you ultimately were diagnosed with Lyme disease in your uh, late 20s, is that correct? Yes. And at any time prior to your diagnosis, and we're going to spend some time focusing on diagnosis, but at any time prior to your Lyme disease diagnosis, had you thought of Lyme? I did not. Before my diagnosis, there was a lot of time spent on exotic diseases, both by my parents and by my doctors, um, because I'd spent so much time living overseas. I was actually diagnosed with TB. Um, or had a positive PPT test and had to take nine months of antibiotics for that in high school, which probably also wreaked havoc on my system. And, you know, I think I, I, I think I just went down that rabbit hole of, you know, do I have, what rare disease do I have? Just because no one could seem to find any answers. And I was just told over and over again, you're, from what we can see, you're super healthy. Now, your immune system had been weak from probably the day you were born, and you seem to have health challenge after health challenge after health challenge. Did any doctor ever suggest to you during that whole journey up until you were 27 years old that perhaps you were suffering from an immune problem as a consequence of having a tick disease? No, never. 
And eventually the only way that it even entered my worldview was because after years and years of looking for answers, I mean, we're talking 10 years, I got super frustrated one day and I put all of my symptoms into WebMD. <laughs> I mean, this is after seeing 30, 40 doctors, the best doctors on both coasts, you know, Columbia, NYU, Stanford, UCLA, was told I was healthy over and over again. And so I put my symptoms into WebMD and lo and behold, what came back was Lyme disease or mono. I'd already had mono as a kid twice, which is another <laughs> weird medical facts about me. And so I was pretty focused on Lyme at that point. And even then, even when I had narrowed it down, I could not even get answers because at that point I was living in California and I went around in circles, visiting doctors, begging for a Lyme disease test. And I was told four times, I believe, there's no Lyme disease in California. It's a really expensive test. We don't want to do it. You don't have Lyme disease you're fine. It's probably just stress. And I eventually found a physician's assistant and sort of bullied her, <laughs> not going to lie, into giving me a test. I threatened to sue. And she gave me the test. And excuse my language, she called me a few weeks later and said, holy shit, I can't believe it. You have Lyme disease. All we can tell is that you've had it for more than a few years. You're the first person I've ever seen that has it, which is kind of bizarre. And, you know, it's out of my depth. I'm going to send you to an infectious disease doctor. So now let's talk about that window of time where you and your parents are going on this journey to try to discover what's wrong with you. And everyone is telling you, you look fine. You're the picture of health, but you feel like crap. Yeah. How did that make you feel emotionally? And what impact did that have on the past diagnosis you had had of depression? Oh man, it was really difficult mentally. It still is. I I'm, don't want to go too far into it, but my parents officially now do not believe in Lyme disease. They do not believe me. They wish me well with my mental illness, which is what they think Lyme disease is, but they are not supportive in my Lyme journey. So it really just became me fighting this and my therapist really fighting this battle and really getting no support. I would love to talk a little bit about the gender bias, but for me in, in diagnosis of Lyme disease, but in, for me, I lost a lot of weight. I was told by everybody in my life how great I looked. I'd never looked better, um, my parents included. And it really became this psychological sort of mindfuck, so to speak, where everyone was like, you look so great. And on the inside, my body was screaming out in pain and, and my brain of, I don't understand what's happening. I know something's wrong so strongly in my core that I feel like screaming and I'm doing everything right. I'm going to the doctors. I'm putting my head down. I'm trusting the doctors. I'm doing the rounds. And no one could offer me any answers. And, you know, it's just unfortunately not a unique experience. Since I do a lot of research in Lyme disease, I think the stat is 72% are misdiagnosed. And the most common 
misdiagnosis or psychiatric disorders, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, and I was labeled with all of those way before and even after I had a Lyme diagnosis. Well, you did stumble into a topic that I would like to explore with you, even though you hinted that perhaps you may not want to explore it. And and I'd like you to talk (laughs) with us about gender bias and why you believe that your gender played a role in the medical community's failure to diagnose you properly. Yeah. So, I mean, anyone who's a Lyme patient has probably noticed overwhelmingly in your Lyme doctor or Lyme literature doctor's office that all the patients or the majority of the patients are female. And it's really sort of bizarre because according to the CDC, I think it's 58% of cases reported are males. So there's something going on there. And certainly the majority of doctors or all the doctors that I saw of 40 or 50 of them were all male. And looking at the stats of 52% being misdiagnosed with a psychiatric disorder before Lyme disease, I don't think it's too much of a leap trying to be diplomatic here that some of these male doctors could possibly be looking at these female patients. And I was told to my face, you're hysterical. This is just stress. I had one doctor say, actually a few doctors, and I started recording them. I don't know what I'm going to do with these recordings. But one of them said to me, this is something that happens to young women when they start working. It's really stressful to start a job. You're probably just not prepared. And it's devastating to hear that over and over again when you know something is wrong. Um, And especially, you know, I would go into these appointments by myself and I think about and later saw once I got my dad to come with me to one appointment, just how differently I was treated once I had him to advocate for me. And he was not a great advocate, you know, truthfully, he would ask questions like, he was an investor or is an investment banker. And he would say, you know, investment banker on Wall Street, you know, in Connecticut. And he would say, I work on the trading floor with five or 10 guys with Lyme disease and they're all fine. I don't understand why my daughter's so sick. This is what she has. Why can't she get over it? And, you know, now research is coming out that shows that women attract more ticks and have more atypical rash or more atypical Lyme symptoms, more atypical rashes. The Lyme testing. The ELISA test favors men over women. Men have more positive tests and more positive Western blots. Women have an exaggerated response to the Lyme disease infection. They have more inflammation. They have more cytokines than men. They have a higher treatment failure rate. Um, There's a whole aspect of histamine that makes dealing with Lyme disease and Lyme disease treatment much more difficult for um, women than it is for men. And I just unfortunately think it's a facet of a lack of empathy from doctors and combined with a lack of research. And I think it has devastating impact on the mental health of these patients, myself included. Unfortunately, I don't think the Lyme epidemic is creating the sexism that that clearly exists in the medical community i think it's just exposing it and matt and i in doing some of the research that we've done in the past have come across this this brilliant young woman named jennifer brea who had been featured in a documentary unrest 
she talks about the history of, of sexism in uh, the medical community and the diagnosis such as hysteria, which was a medical diagnosis, uh, largely mm-hmm. for women who they doctors had challenges with properly diagnosing, and, and diseases like fibromyalgia, which is a disorder, not a disease. So this unfortunately Correct. is a pattern that we see during the course of our podcast, and we really appreciate you sharing your experience with the medical community, and unfortunately, even people who should be supporting you in your support system, not unfortunately looking past the sexism that you're facing. Yeah. So, Laura, let's, let's talk about the challenges that you had when you finally came to your diagnosis. You seem to be the kind of person, if I were a doctor, that I would be thrilled to work with. You want to be a part of it. <laughs> you're doing your own research. You're, you're, you're asking me to be a good scientist, and we're, we're together working to try to use a scientific method to come to a diagnosis of your, of your challenges. Yet, it doesn't seem to me that the medical community was thrilled to work with you. Tell us about what that experience no. was like after you determined through your research that you may be suffering from Lyme disease. Absolutely. So coming back to my diagnosis, that physician's assistant was just totally out of her depth. So she sent me to an infectious disease specialist, and I actually did my own research and <laughs> didn't see the one she recommended. I went to the top one at UCLA. And he told me he still wasn't convinced even from my positive Lyme test, which is pretty rare considering that it's only 40 or 50% accurate, that Elisa test. So it was kind of a miracle that I had a positive test right off the bat. But he even said, based on your travel history, you know, it's unlikely that it's Lyme. You probably have something else. He was talking about Ebola. (laughs) But eventually, you know, I am a very compliant patient. I come prepared. I do my own research. I bring said research for better or worse. I don't know if that's annoying to doctors. I, I think it's helpful. Yeah. So he basically said, all right, I'll give you two weeks of doxycycline. You're going to be fine. You can go back to work. Don't worry about it. If it's Lyme disease, you're going to be fixed right up. So I did that. I listened to him. Um, I took the antibiotics and I was two weeks later back in that office saying, I don't feel any better. Actually, I feel way worse. And he, his response was, oh, well, if you don't feel better, then it's not Lyme disease. So we need to keep, you know, either it's in your head because I made the mistake of all these doctors that I thought would say, well, I've been diagnosed with a mental thing, but I don't believe that it's this. And I think that really put sort of a uh, scarlet letter on my patient file there. Laura, I just want to say that that's not uncommon. I had the exact same experience where when I finally got my Lyme diagnosis, I was on 21 days of IV antibiotics with my infectious disease doctor. I returned after the fact saying that I still felt sick. In fact, I felt even worse. And his words were Mm -hmm. that it's not Lyme disease, it's something else. And we've heard that story among so many other guests. So you are not alone in that. And it's so unfortunate that we have to go through that. So unfortunate. And I mean, I think about all the time that I wasted because I listened to him. I had not at this point heard anything about around the phrase chronic Lyme disease. So I had not widened my own research to include that. He told me, you know, you're cured. If you have Lyme disease, you're better. And I, you know, sort of put my head down, went back to work. I had just started a new job in LA and I believed it. And then I started passing out at work and my eyelashes all fell out and I had a seizure while I was presenting to my brand new client, Instagram, very high profile client. 
And, you know, I eventually sort of had to face the music and, and keep looking for answers. Can you walk us through what the doctors were saying was the cause of your fainting and your seizures? I mean, are, are they still saying it's mental health and that your mental health problems were causing you to faint and also have these seizures? I was told they were probably panic attacks. I didn't really know what they were at the time. They were happening really infrequently. And often after a night of drinking for some, well, not for some reason, now I know I have pernicious anemia, which is another thing we can talk about, uh, an autoimmune disease, so which I almost died from, despite it being very, very easy to diagnose. So I think what might have been happening was alcohol depletes B12. I was severely low on B12, triggered seizures, or it was Lyme triggering the seizures, but I didn't know what they were. I honestly didn't have time to figure out what they were. I would tell doctors about them and they would just sort of dismiss me. Uh, was it still, it sounds unbelievable when I tell these stories, but it was just, no one seemed concerned except for me. Now, Laura, you finally got your diagnosis because of your own hard work and threatening a lawsuit if they didn't run the test. You were one of the fortunate ones to get a diagnosis a positive diagnosis from the blood test. So you were on antibiotics for about four weeks, returned back to the infectious disease doctor, and, and he said that it can't be Lyme. And at that point, knowing yeah. you just so far from this interview, you did not accept that answer. So what were your next steps at that point? So I, I went back to work. You know, I, I sort of continued to steadily decline. I started having those seizures at work. Um, at that point, I was throwing up a few times a day at work. I was yeah, things were bad, but I had a very, very high pressure, high stress job, and I was masking my symptoms by taking Adderall. That's what my therapist was telling me to do. Doctors were telling me I was healthy, and, you know, in every spare minute that I had, I was doing research. My very serious boyfriend at the time, both of his parents are ER doctors, and I was trying to tap them for help, and Neither of them even brought it to my attention that there could be something called chronic Lyme disease. They were very dismissive. And it was just through a lot more research. And I eventually found, I believe it was not, I, I was in LA at the time. And I believe on Facebook, I found the LA Lyme Facebook group. And by hanging out in there for a while, I found out that there was something called chronic Lyme disease. And I sort of got hooked up into this clandestine world of Lyme literate doctors, doctors who would, who were knowledgeable about Lyme and who would treat you but didn't want their names out there for fear of persecution from the CDC or the insurance companies or whatever. And that was when I realized I needed to go and see one of these doctors. I just didn't realize that that meant a waiting list of 24 months or 12 months or whatever. So Laura, you basically were told you were healed from the Lyme and your leftover symptoms were mental health related and to just move on with your life and, and be happy. And you refused that diagnosis and then eventually found out about chronic Lyme. Is that an accurate assessment of your, your post-diagnosis and treatment experience? Yes. Yes, correct. And I mean, I had to dodge a lot of crazy suggestions. I had an ortho, you know, part of one of my symptoms was severe back pain. So I saw an orthopedic surgeon. He was suggesting things like, let's do exploratory surgery. And I was so desperate at the time, I almost did it. And thank God, 
I didn't because that was wildly off from what was really going on. And you hit on another, another key point there for us is that you found these doctors that will help treat chronic Lyme, but because of the stigma, they don't want their names to be out there out of fear that they'll lose their medical license. And unfortunately, most of those doctors do not accept health insurance. So did you have to pay oh, out of yeah. pocket for a lot of your treatment at this time once you discovered chronic Lyme? Yeah. Everything, every doctor that I've seen related to chronic Lyme outside of the traditional medical system, you know, I've tried to see a few traditional infectious disease doctors, which have been covered, but they're supremely unhelpful. So everyone I've seen that actually has been helpful, though no one really got me any closer to healing, but some of them gave me good information. Um, none of them were covered by insurance. So none of my appointments, sitting fees of a thousand to $2,000 an hour per appointment, not covered. Antibiotics, not covered. IV antibiotics, not covered. I was spending, you know, I was incredibly successful in New York and LA in advertising, um, making $200,000 a year. So for me to spend, I thought that this was going to be, you know, a three month recovery journey. And so I was comfortable spending between five and some months I was spending almost $25,000 a month on antibiotics. And that was being conservative, you know, from what my doctors were suggesting, I was kind of like, all right, let's go easy. And some of my doc my medicine, I was ordering from overseas for it to be cheaper. Uh, I mean, it's, it quickly became incredibly financially distressing. And over a period of only a few years, I spent almost $215,000 out of pocket. And that was saying no to a lot of suggestions that I got. Laura, I'd like to learn more about the doctor you chose who was Lyme literate and understood chronic Lyme disease, and then what your treatment plan was with this new doctor. Sure. So I went to see, I actually had gotten from that LA Lyme group a few doctors recommended on the East Coast. And at that time, my parents were supportive, but for whatever reason, my dad was saying, you know, we, he's from the East Coast. I want an East Coast, New York, Jewish doctor. If I'm going to pay for a doctor, that's who I want to see. And so I was looking for East Coast doctors, but I couldn't get in to see anyone for, I think the waiting list was 24 months. And I just would call and cry to that doctor's office saying, I don't think I'm going to make it. I think I'm going to die. And eventually she, it was a female doctor said, okay, I'm going to recommend you to recommend this doctor um, Mountain View to you. I was living in California at the time, and even he had a 12-month waiting list that I called and begged and got in and paid exorbitant sitting fees to see him. But he gave me, he was sort of the first person who was like, yes, there is something called chronic Lyme disease. Wow, you probably have it. You have all the symptoms. You also probably have mast cell, pot, pans, you know, chronic fatigue, autoimmune encephalitis. He just, you know really painted a picture for the whole landscape for me and probably saved me tons of research. So that's, you know, really what his job is to do. You mentioned that this, this doctor had said you probably have mast cell and POTS and PANS and, and autoimmune. Do you believe, mm -hmm. did your doctor believe that those were all a consequence of the Lyme disease? The way that he described it to me, yes. And and I believe that as well. I think the inflammation cascade and the impact 
that having Lyme for a prolonged amount of time has on your immune system certainly triggers additional autoimmune conditions, which I have two of that I know of, and triggers all these mast cell problems, which we see over and over again in our clients at the Heel Hive. POTS, all of this is pretty standard. Rich and I completely agree that these other illnesses or, or conditions are a result of chronic Lyme and weakening your immune system. And just, we've seen countless guests that have had POTS and autoimmune disease, lupus, things like that as a consequence of their Lyme mm-hmm. disease. So if you could tell us next what your treatment plan was with this new doctor who was Lyme literate. Sure. So he, he was the first doctor that I started recording because my brain fog was so bad at the time and I didn't have anyone to come to appointments with me to, you know, sort of be my second set of ears. Um, as you're probably picking up on, I'm very thorough. So I would record these and, and listening back to them, it was shocking. And I wish I'd been more aware of this. He said, we're just going to throw a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. And Thinking about that now and thinking about how much money I spent and mental energy and, oh, God, I cannot believe he was my, you know, (laughs) captain of this ship saying, we're just going to see what happens. And, um, you know, he turned, he sort of disappeared for a while and was less active, which was frustrating. And then he popped up as the doctor on that show, Afflicted, um, that Netflix series. So I know what he was up to. but. his treatment was basically aggressive antibiotics. So I did doxycycline, zithromycin, biapsin, diacin, ceftin, you know, rifampin, rocephin, psyllin. I can't even, there's so many of them. So many that I eventually combined with all the antibiotics I took for Lyme, combined with all the antibiotics I took growing up, traveling as quote unquote, preventative antibiotics. When I eventually ended up in the ICU with an infected pick line, they told me, we don't have any more antibiotics to give you to fight this infection. And we don't know if we can save you. <laughs> they eventually found their sort of, they called it their desperate act antibiotics that they reserved for anthrax and Ebola. Uh, but basically I've been told I can never get an infection again because I've really gone, gone through all the antibiotics out there. Laura, did your, did your Lyme doctor at the time recommend anything to offset the damage that all of these antibiotics would do? So for example, to balance out your, your, your gut bacteria and to strengthen your immune system, because the antibiotics do have a negative effect as well, of course, aside from killing off all these bacteria from, from the Lyme disease. Of course. Yeah. No, he recommended a probiotic. Um, not Specifically, you know, there was no talk about side effects of antibiotics. He recommended a probiotic, but did not say this is because of the antibiotics. I think he was saying this is going to help with digestion or something. But there was no conversation. You know, what I really would have appreciated is if he said, there's no study that shows that 30 days of antibiotics cures Lyme disease. Or if he'd said, there's a 40% relapse rate or 12% report feeling worse. Um, that would have really given me pause. And, you know, what I advocate for is just transparency with these doctors. Laura, I want to bring you back to the conversation we had a minute ago about your gender and discrimination in the medical community. Do you think the doctor Mm -hmm. did not give you the information that you would have 
needed to make different decisions because of your gender? I don't know if that's ever occurred to me specifically that he didn't give me the whole background. I think patients just aren't looking for that. I will continually tell people over and over again, you know, ask for the research. If, when people are asking me about treatments that I don't agree with, like ozone or, you know, there's so many, um, I'll say just ask for the research and they'll either come back to me and say the doctor doesn't have any research or the doctor got upset that I asked for research. And I, you know, I think it goes back to a broken medical system. I think patients are not empowered. I think in America specifically, we are trained to not question the doctors. And we think that because they have so much power that we can hold them to a higher moral standard. And, you know, being a doctor is a business just like any other business, especially these naturopaths, functional medicine doctors, you know, I can't broad strokes, I can't say every single one of them, but there's a reason why doctors decide to become functional medicine doctors or naturopaths. You know, you make a lot more money that way and you don't have any oversight from insurance companies. So I can just quickly see how some bad apples could um, very easily start taking advantage of people. Aside from the antibiotics that you were on with this Lyme Litter doctor, at that same time you were on all these different antibiotics, was there anything else you were doing in parallel or just the antibiotics from this Lyme Litter doctor? I mean, even then, and I had a lot, a lot of money then, I was, rec you know, it was recommended to me to do IV glutathione, to do hyperbaric oxygen treatment, to do lymphatic massage, to get acupuncture twice a week, you know, and I was already paying thousands of dollars a month for these antibiotics. I was I, I didn't feel comfortable then, you know, spending another thousand dollars a month on the herbal supplements he was recommending, the massage, the acupuncture. I was just like, whoa, 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 this is all too much. Um so I actually did not do a lot of it, but he was recommending, you know, IVs every single day, Myers cocktail, glutathione, all that jazz. I just didn't do it. He also had me on a whole range of antifungals, antivirals, antacids, you know, claritin, all kinds of stuff that was over the counter. Some of it was covered by insurance, but most of it wasn't. So, Laura, how long were you on these strong combination antibiotics for? See, I started at the end of 2015, and I ended up. The bookend for that was me ending up in the ICU in October 20. 18. And at that point, I had progressed to IV antibiotics. So I guess oral would have been the, 20, the end of 2015, all of 2016, all of 2017, and the majority of 2018 before I got the pick line. You know, the doctor just kept saying, let's rotate through different antibiotics, be patient. And I kept saying, this really can't be great. <laughs> But I wasn't empowered enough to do enough research on the gut health stuff there. And he just kept being like, you need to be patient. You need to be patient. Did you see improvements over this three-year window that encouraged you to keep going? No. I felt worse and worse and worse, despite, you know, by this point, I'd been fired from my job. I was pretty much full-time patient. So I had more time to rest is what I'm saying. But, and I just felt worse and worse and worse. And my anxiety around the cost and my career going down the tank and all of that was going up and up and up. What caused you to stop taking the antibiotics? Was it your trip that landed you in the ICU? 
Yeah. So I really begged that doctor to get me on IV antibiotics. And I, towards the end of seeing him, started seeing a naturopath in tandem because I was concerned about all the antibiotics. And I went to this naturopath (laughs) thinking that he was going to say, for a second opinion, thinking that he was going to say, oh my gosh, you need to get off of these antibiotics. Instead, he said, oh my God, you should have been on IV antibiotics years ago. And so that really put the lit a fire under me and I was all panicked and I need to get on these IV antibiotics right away. Um, And so I begged that original doctor and it took me almost a year to get the insurance and all the stuff and the home nurse and all this jazz. But I got on the IV antibiotics and within less than a month and at great expense, it was less than a month. I was in an ambulance on the way to the ICU with 107.5 degree fever, which I think it's over anything over 104 or 105 is great risk of brain damage. And even even then when I was in there, you know, I was conscious, I remember it, but I was delirious and they were saying, we need to take your pick line out. And I was saying, please don't, this could be my first hurt. I think it's just a hurt. <laughs> and I wouldn't let them take the pick line out because I'd been so ingrained in my head that, you know, we're going for this healing crisis. You need to have a hurt. If it's not, if you're not getting worse, the medicine's not working. And I insisted on speaking with my naturopath and that line literate doctor before I gave them permission to take the pick line out because I was convinced at that point that this was a good thing that I was having this extreme reaction and that that meant the antibiotics were working. In hindsight, it was kind of, well, a challenging miracle because I ended up in Santa Barbara. I was in Santa Barbara at this point and the hospital there, they have in, we don't believe in Lyme disease policy. So they immediately, when they were asking me what my medicine, my medication list in the ambulance, and at the time I was on more than 100 supplements and prescriptions combined. (laughs) And when I said, they asked me why, and I said Lyme disease, and they immediately, I guess, flagged me as a psychiatric patient because they have a blanket policy that chronic Lyme disease doesn't exist. And so I went through a lot of judgment, a lot of, you know, you're killing yourself with these antibiotics. This is your fault type stuff in the hospital. But I was there for almost three weeks. And because of that, they wouldn't give me any of the antibiotics or these hundred medications that I was on. So I basically detoxed off of them. Um, And by the end of it, once they said I could leave or discharged me, I was totally out of money. I had been off all of my my medicine for three or four weeks, and I just, they told me if I took any more antibiotics, if I got another pick line, I was probably going to die. So I was just totally out of options at this point, and I decided, okay, well, instead of going back on antibiotics, I can't really afford them anyways, um, what are my other options? And I started looking into other things, um, bee venom included. So at this point now, you're out of the hospital and, you know, you nearly died and you're looking at other options. So what were your next steps? Did you work with a naturopath? Did you return to your Lyme literate doctor? How did you proceed at this point? I did not return to my Lyme literate doctor. Right around this time, I did, or before I ended up in the hospital, I had done an interview with the Daily Mail with the intention of the dual intention of raising awareness for Lyme disease and raising money for my GoFundMe. 
because I was, you know, I burned through all that money and was then already in debt. You know, I burned through 200 something thousand dollars and then entered debt. And I just didn't, and no family support, no job. I had applied for disability. My mom threw out my application. So I was really in a pickle there with money. So my options were limited, small. And I had raised some money with the intention of exploring hyperthermia treatment in St. George in Germany, which was something that I had sort of elevated as my next option after antibiotics, after much years and years and years of research and talking to patients through social media, trying to figure out what had the best outcomes. Yeah, I decided on hyperthermia, but very, very, very expensive. And I had sort of been kicking around the idea of V-venom therapy, which I had found actually maybe a year before a research study about it in a random forum of the internet, but it sounded so extreme that I just kind of tabled it for another day. But desperate times call for desperate measures. So I sort of dusted it off and brought it off the shelf. Laura, can you give our listeners a description of what bee venom therapy is? Sure. So bee venom therapy and the most, the logistics of it are using bee venom from live bees to treat Lyme disease, tick-borne illness, and co-infections, and a lot of the systemic damage that results from having Lyme disease for a sustained amount of time. Bee venom itself, there's been a ton of research into it, and they found that it is antibacterial, antiviral, antifungal, antiparasitic, a powerful anti-inflammatory, helps regenerate nerve damage, helps with suppression pain. So it's a pretty powerful medicine um, and broad strokes antibiotic, a hundred times more powerful than any antibiotic we have. And I believe a thousand times more powerful than any anti-inflammatory that any other inflammatory that we know about. But logistically, it is applied by stinging yourself with live bees. And once you started digging into this, because you were just so desperate, like all of us, and it started to seem more and more legitimate, what were your next steps to pursue bee venom therapy? Sure. So I am an avid researcher. So I found this research study. I started Googling away. I found that there were a few Facebook groups um, where people were doing this specifically for Lyme disease and talking about it and sharing their experiences. So I started creeping on those Facebook groups, basically, and there were two specifically that stood out in my mind, and they each sort of had their own protocol. They were kind of overlapping, but there were a lot of discrepancies and um, a lot of conflicting information in between the two of them, so I tried to cobble them together as best as I could, and I decided that I was going to give this thing a try. Did you have any concerns about giving this thing a try or were you just willing to do anything because you were so desperate at this stage in your journey? Uh, yeah, I had huge concerns about it. I think, you know, we talk about this all the time with the venom therapy. I think you were hoping to change this phenomenon, but it seems like the people that find and embrace bees 
are those that have hit rock bottom. You know, these are the people who have been sick and been in treatment for 10, 20 years who, you know, it's an act of desperation to begin BVT. Um, we're hoping that the tides change and hopefully it'll be everyone's first port of call in the future. But yeah, it was massively concerning. I am not afraid of spiders, you know, sharks, pipes, any of that. My thing was bees. I had never been stung by a bee because I was so, you know, I was one of those people who would turn and sprint in the opposite direction if there was a bee around. So I was really afraid of them. I didn't know if I was allergic. I didn't know if this was going to work. I was concerned it's a two to three year protocol. That seems like a heck of a lot of time to commit to something if you don't know it's going to work. And so, yeah, I had a ton of concerns. I didn't really have that many role models or anyone to talk to about it in person. I didn't have a support system. My parents, they didn't really want to talk to any friends about it. It seemed kind of bizarre. And I had a sense that this was going to be sort of a last draw with my parents <laughs> that, you know, whatever goodwill I had from them before, once I told them, okay, now I'm using bees that I was they're going to be shown the door. And unfortunately that was the case, but it was the best decision I ever made. So Laura, you chose to move forward with bee venom therapy, despite knowing that it was essentially going to ruin whatever relationship you had left with your parents. Yes. Mm -hmm. And looking back now, we know that was a good decision because it really significantly helped you improve. But can you walk us through now, realizing that was the reality of what was happening, and then moving forward and going through your first experience with actually being stung by these bees and, and how it felt and what it was like? Yeah. So I was living at my mom's house at the time. I knew that this was not something to talk about. I ordered them off the internet got them delivered to the house. They come in a little discreet package. I didn't have a lock on my door at the time and knew my mom could barge in at any time. So I literally hid in the closet. I was in the closet with my bee venom therapy and put a mirror in there and, you know, took a few deep breaths and psyched myself up and just sort of went for it. Um, I iced my back first. I didn't need to. It does not hurt at all compared to what most Lyme's go through. I mean, sitting in an IV room with an IV a needle in your arm for eight hours is way worse than, you know, the little pinprick from a bee sting. And, you know, I immediately felt a little burst of energy, you know, more, it was tiny, but it was more than I could ever remember feeling. Maybe since I was a kid, maybe ever. And I sort of thought, okay, well, even if this doesn't cure me, cure my Lyme, you know, this is something that I definitely want to keep in my arsenal just for the energy that I immediately felt from it. And that was after the first sting, one sting, you felt mm -hmm. that relief? Yes. First sting, you know, it hurt. <laughs> and it was surprising, but it did not, I had built up fear of bees for 30 years. It did not hurt nearly as much as I thought. I was not allergic. It's actually a really small percentage of people that are allergic, but I was foolish. I did not have an EpiPen. I did not have anybody there with me to call 911 if I had a problem. So very passionate about safety first moving forward. Don't do what I do, but yeah. 
I immediately felt like I was onto something. So for the first time you did it, what did you just do one sting and then see how that worked? And then the next day follow up with a, maybe a second sting? Yeah. So I did what we call a testing and it's recommended that you sting yourself one time and the full venom comes out of a bee sting over the course of 10 to 30 minutes. So leaving that stinger in 10 to 30 minutes would get you the whole dose of bee venom, so to speak, which is what I did. But now in hindsight, what would have been much smarter and safer with a first test sting is to leave the stinger in for about 15 seconds and then pull it out or pull it out immediately, depending on how nervous you are, because that would limit the potential of a reaction um, while still giving you enough venom to see. So can you walk us through the progression of how you use bee venom therapy? So the next day you introduced maybe a second sting to your regimen and then how that progressed and then mm -hmm. how you felt throughout that progression. Sure. So the protocol entails three sting sessions a week and the other days are detox days. So basically for me, Monday, Wednesday, Friday became my sting days. And all the other days were detox days. We detox like crazy, do sauna, uh, coffee, enema, detox bath. We can talk about that a little bit more. But you essentially ramp up with your stinging. So if you're someone who's especially sensitive, and that can happen from an allergy, that can happen from mast cell, histamine, all of that stress, diet, all of that can impact how much you react to a sting, how inflamed it becomes, how painful it is. You would start with one sting. So say you do it for, leave it in for 15 seconds, you have no reaction. Then two days later, essentially, if that's your sting day, you would do one full sting for 30 seconds. And then the idea is that, and one of the beautiful things about bee venom therapy is that you can control the pace and that there's no real value in going faster than necessary. So you, what I mean by that is that you can control your herxing. And what you want to go for is increased functionality. So basically, you can do start with one sting, do that three times a week, and do that until you feel like you've increased your functionality. And once that happens, then you increase to two stings. And you do two stings three times a week. And once you feel like, okay, I've got all, you know, that level has done its, its work. I've herxed all of that out. Now I'm ready to move on and progress to the next level. And you basically ramp up all the way to 10 stings, 10 are the maximum. Though only eight is needed for true healing. We can get into that a little bit more. But yes, it's a very measured ramp up. You control the pace. You can go down at any point. And because it's a two to three year protocol, there's no incentive to go faster. There's no incentive to ramp up more quickly because that will just increase your hurts. You'll feel horrible, but you won't be healing any faster. So for someone like me, you know, it just has changed my entire world because I can now have a life again. I control what my symptoms are going to be. And it's just given me incredible freedom and lifted financial and mental burdens.
So can you walk us through how this has changed your life? Meaning what kind of function did you, did you regain and at what pace? Sure. So I immediately felt a little bit of energy and it was a slow build up from there. So, you know, I used to work, wake up probably like many of you guys and be annoyed that, that it was morning and that I had to go through another day because I was so exhausted. And almost immediately after starting BVT, I started feeling, you know, just a little bit of energy when I would wake up in the morning. Like, okay, all right, I'm going to have, you know, it was only five minutes and then it was 10 minutes and then it was 20 minutes. But after years and years and years of going, of declining, uh, this was something and I was excited. And then other symptoms started to fall away. I started being able to eat more foods. My rashes went away. I stopped having seizures. I used to have a pretty persistent twitch in my right eye would twitch constantly. And one day it started twitching super rapidly and didn't stop for a few hours. And I thought, oh great, what's, what's going on now? And it, then it stopped and I have never had it again. So I've just seen symptoms fall away. My insomnia is almost gone. Anxiety. It's, I almost don't want to ask any questions because it's been so magical and such a different experience than any of the other modalities that I have tried. I'm sorry, Laura. You've given us a description of now the function or the functions you've regained. How did it feel as it was working? I mean, as this bee venom was working, what did it feel like? It felt incredibly empowering. I felt hope for the first time. And I felt like, okay, this is something that I can stick with. I think the biggest change for me was the mental burden that was lifted. Before finding and beginning BVT, I was stuck in this cycle of going to a Lyme doctor, spending a thousand or two thousand dollars a month to talk to them, where they would then tell me, okay, you need to try this thing. It's going to cost you $40,000 or $80,000. We don't know if it's going to work, but you need to try it. And every month this would happen and I would just get so stressed out. Do I need to do this thing? Can I afford to do this thing? And then I would inevitably feel like I was depriving myself if I didn't do it. And it was just crushing and anxiety producing. And I was giving my power to somebody else. And with bee venom therapy, I've been able to break that cycle. I don't have to go see to other doctors. I don't have to be told that, you know, I could get better if I only spent another hundred thousand dollars. I'm in charge now. I'm my own healer and I get to control the pace of my treatment. And that knowing what my plan is for the next two to three years, knowing what I have to do on a daily basis and being able to focus on that and having confidence that it's going to work because this is a science-based protocol is night and day for my headspace. My headspace. I, it's been transformative. Well, I'm just going to ask you to walk us through the steps of the process that you're going through. Meaning, I'd like you to describe removing the bee from whatever container it's in, then where you would ultimately be stung, and then how you begin to feel immediately after the sting, and then how the feeling, physical feeling, progresses until the end of uh, the process. 
Sure. So most people order bees. Um, there's a few companies that will ship them to you in the mail, or you can work with a local beekeeper. Basically, I get a little box in the mail. I have a mobile beehive. It's a tiny box, wooden box, the size of a, a shoebox. I take my little thing that I get in the mail. I put them in there. Bees, I get about 30 to 60 bees at a time. They live in there. And then I can take my little bee house with me anywhere. I essentially go into the bathroom because it's a small space in case any of them get out. It's easier to catch them and they go to the light. But you slide the little door open to your bee house. I take a pair of tweezers. I grab one of the bees with my tweezers. And then, because I've been doing this, actually today is my one-year anniversary. So I've been doing this for a year now. And I'm pretty comfortable with the bees. So I will just grab them off the tweezer with my hands. And then I hold it against my back with my hands. And bees, you know, it's a, it's a misconception. They don't really want to sting you. So you have to get them positioned the right way and then sometimes give them a little tap on their butt and they will sting you. And it's a bee sting. It hurts a little bit. It's a sharp, a sharp sting. But you, the first time you sting yourself is the worst, the worst pain because your histamine and muscles haven't been regulated worse, uh, haven't been regulated yet. And so that pain and those reactions decrease over time. And now I barely have any reaction at all. But essentially, you sting along your spine because the idea is that's where all of your nerve endings are. So it's one inch from either side of your spine. And the idea is that over the course of two to three years, you will sting every point along your spine. So the venom will be dispersed to every point within your body, including your extremities, to get the Lyme spirochetes wherever they may hiding. They're shaped like a corkscrew. So they basically drill into your bones and your organs and your brain. And so you need to scar tissue, all that. So the venom needs to go throughout your entire system. And we access that by stinging along the spine. And then over time, you know, once you're one or two years into bee venom therapy, it's, it's individualized. Then you can start stinging extremities, your neck your spine, your jaw, to get the areas where spirochetes are and the Borrelia are most often hiding. But immediately after stinging, it's a sharp pain. Some people describe, but it dissipates really quickly, people describe feeling the venom move throughout their body. I felt this not every time, but sometimes I feel it going up my spine. Sometimes I can feel it going down my arm. It's not a painful feeling at all. For me, I think I'm a little bit addicted to it. When I have my two detox days in a row and I haven't stung for a while, I can definitely feel it in my body. I can feel that inflammation and I'm waiting for that sting day to feel it go back down. So it's a, it's a comforting feeling. I get energy from it. It's almost like having coffee. So from the description you, you just gave us, I'm wondering whether or not the venom is supercharging your immune system or is it attacking the spirochete itself? Both. But why it works to cure Lyme disease is that it's attacking the spirochete itself. So basically your cells have this fatty layer around them that protects them. But a, just for the sake of explanation, a bad guy cell, like a bad bacteria, a bad virus, the fatty layer is a little bit different. It's 
more permeable. So basically, with something like antibiotics, you've got all these spirochetes hanging out in your body, all the bacteria floating around. You give yourself antibiotics or ozone or something that the spirochetes recognize as a foreign invader, so to speak, and they're smart. They'll say, oh, God, something's coming for us. We've got to go hide. And it drills further and further into your system, hides out in your bones, your, your organs, all of that. And so people will feel better. That's why people think, oh, I'm in remission or, or oh, I'm cured. My symptoms have been gone, are gone. But then when you stop antibiotics or stop ozone um, or have a stressful life incident, a lot of pregnant people have this uh, phenomenon with pregnancy or a death in the family then the lime can come out of hiding, essentially, and start to wreak havoc again. So what happens is bee venom therapy, the body doesn't recognize as a foreign invader. So when bee venom therapy comes into your system, those bad guy cells don't know to hide, or the spirochetes don't know to hide. And so the apatin, which is the active ingredient in the bee venom therapy, basically is able to put a bunch of little pokes into those bad guy cells, into the bad bacteria, bad viral virus, or whatever it is that is causing our health crisis, and is able to permeate that layer, get the venom into it, and actually explode that cell, which is why you need to detox on the following day, because all of this basically vanquished bad guy cells all that matter is going to be floating around in your system. And so it needs to be detoxed out. And that's why people have this hurt or feel bad the next day. But it's actually able to reverse the damage even done by antibiotics because it starts to draw out, draw out the bacteria, the Lyme bacteria, then attack it, explode it basically, and then you detox it out of your system. How do you detox after you've had a sting day? I, I want to say one more thing that I think is super interesting before I answer that. Um, one thing that we've seen is that a lot of people get, don't have a positive Lyme disease test until they start doing bee venom therapy because they will have done all these antibiotics or ozone or whatever. So Lyme is hiding out enough in your system that you don't get a positive test. But then once you start doing bee venom therapy and it's drawing the bacteria out of your system, we see a lot of it because acute and then people get a positive Lyme test, which I think is really interesting. But for the detox, I prioritize infrared sauna. I do detox baths. I rely heavily on coffee enemas. And then I occasionally will do something sort of extra as budget allows, like lymphatic drainage or massage, um, acupuncture, something like that. And I have pernicious anemia, so I have to do daily B12 injections, which helps with detox as well. But it's almost as, I mean, almost if not as important, the detox days as sting days. And when pe people really fall down when they don't fully grasp that concept, because you're just going to all of that bad guy matter is going to build up if you're not detoxing and you're not going to be regaining functionality. And we see people say, you know, the bees aren't working or, you know, I feel worse. And that's because you need to up your detox. So Laura, you're, you're a year in, you've just celebrated your one year anniversary. 
How are you doing? Tell us how you're doing physically. Physically, I feel transformed. I was starting from zero. I, so, you know, I'm not going to be healed overnight, but I think I'm probably at about 30% better. I have had a lot of my most distressing symptoms fall away. I used to have severe insomnia. I would sleep, you know, maybe an hour a night if I was lucky, even with heavy sleeping pills. That is gone. My seizures are gone. My mysterious rashes are gone. My eyelashes have come back. My hair started growing again. I just cut my nails for the first time in maybe four years yesterday. I had to buy nail clippers. My mental health is completely transformed. I just am overwhelmed by the success that I have seen. And I can only imagine what I'm going to be reporting in a year from now. Um, I think we talked about it a little bit. Um, I developed pernicious anemia and celiac from having Lyme for so long. And the pernicious anemia really put a wrench in my bee venom therapy progress. You know, I've been told that I might have been a month or two away from actually dying from that. So I've had some heavy lifting to do on the healing front, but I'm still almost in shock at how positive my results have been. What impact is this having on you socially? Clearly, when, when folks are really sick, they don't have great social lives. Have you been able to regain some of your social life? Yeah. I mean, just physically feeling better has obviously afforded me, you know, I haven't, I don't spend all day in bed anymore. I spent a few years not getting out of bed, not talking to anybody. And now I feel inspired to be social again. I feel comfortable going out um, and I have the energy and stamina to do so. So on the physical front, but having my hope restored, you know, it feels like there's actually a point to socializing again, a point to thinking about, okay, what do I want my career to be after all of this, which were things, you know, I genuinely believed that I was never going to get better. So just that shift in my headspace has been huge. You know, people are really fascinated by the whole B thing. <laughs> so I've been able to develop a whole community around this that has been amazing and supportive. And, you know, I, I just feel it's such a beautiful symbiosis with the bees and people who love bees turn out to be my people. So that has been a beautiful gift. And then being able to help Brooke, founder of the Heel Hive, build her business out and being able to actually now pass on everything that I've learned to help other people so they don't have to go through what I went through. I feel like I have a purpose again. And, you know, the root of all of this is the bees. And I just could not be more thankful for it. So now I'm going to ask you uh, the important follow-up question we ask all of our guests. And that is, if tomorrow someone you cared about called you up and told you they were bitten by a tick, what would you recommend that they do? I would tell them to save the tick, send it into tickreports.com immediately, figure out what the tick, what tick-borne infections it has, if any, 
And if it has Lyme disease, I would recommend that they go in and start antibiotics right away, which might be surprising to you. And if they were someone that was physically close to me and that trusted me, I would sting their, the site of the bite because the bee venom is also a prophylactic and it will actually help stop the infection before it even starts. And so, you know, in July, I found my first tick on me. It was in my head and that was my first stop. I did a few crown stings on my head and I'm confident that I'm covered. So how early would you begin the bee venom therapy after a bite and for how long would you use the protocol? Again, I would not recommend that anyone just go rogue and sting their head with a bee unless they are working with someone, an apotherapist who knows what they're doing, someone who's been doing bee venom therapy for a long time. But for me, and because I work really closely with Brooke Gahan, who's, who's a very talented apotherapist, I was confident in her suggestion. So I did one thing around the bite site for three or four days circle the whole area, one a day for three or four days. And then I got my results back that the tick actually did not have Lyme, which was fantastic. But even if it had, I would have felt very confident that with my bees that it wouldn't have been a problem. Now, part of your transformation has also been qualifying as an apotherapist yourself. Mm -hmm. What was that process like? How did you become an apotherapist? And if folks in our community wanted to reach out to you to find out where they could find a local apotherapist, would you be able to help them with that? Sure. So I would recommend that everyone's first stop be the Heal Hive. That is the company that Brooke founded and that I'm working with her very closely to um, develop and spread the word. I've been able to use my marketing background on that, which is incredibly fulfilling. And from there, we will be able to point you in the direction of all of the steps that you need to do to best prepare to safely begin the bee venom therapy protocol, which includes comprehensive labs, which includes, it's a holistic approach. So it's diet, it's a mental piece, it is physical movement, it is addressing trauma, it is not just DB venom, that's sort of the medicine, but the protocol is holistic, if that makes sense. So my recommendation, go to the Heal Hive and then get your information. And if you choose to work with a local apotherapist, we can point you in the direction of someone in your area who's talented, but it's really important to make sure that you do the proper screening, because there's a lot of things, a lot of potential roadblocks with bee venom therapy, including other autoimmune conditions like pernicious anemia, which is very, very easy to see on labs, but somehow my 50 plus doctors all missed and would have killed me very soon. And also another one is living in mold. You will not heal if you are actively living in mold. So all that screening needs to be done first to safely begin bee venom therapy and to make sure that you're navigating any potential roadblocks. But yeah, you know, it's pretty straightforward and we are so excited to share this 
nature's gift with everybody. If there was one person who you could not have gotten through this journey without, who is that person? That would be Brooke Gahan at Everyday Expert is her handle on Instagram. And she, I mean, I'm going to give a little credit to myself. I think that I would be in a very different place if I was not as aggressive, as research oriented, as persistent. I mean, as annoying as I probably am to doctors, I would not have even gotten to D-Venom therapy. But then once I decided to make that leap and embrace BVT, I mean, Brooke has been essential. I and the Heal Hive, I learned, like I said, B-Venom therapy off of the Facebook groups. It was, I didn't feel confident. There was contradictory information. It didn't seem like everyone was having success. There's no doctor oversight, none of that. So I did not feel confident at all. And being able to meet her have a consultation with her. She immediately earmarked my pernicious anemia, saved my life. No joke there. She was able to give me the confidence that this is something that was going to work. I was doing it right. And that she gave me the greatest role model and motivation that there can be just by being her vibrant self and showing me her negative, her positive line test before even in therapy and her negative Lyme test after. I mean, there was no, nothing instilled greater confidence than that little piece of science for me. I'm very motivated by science research. And that's my biggest piece of advice is do not take advice from anyone who is not themselves healed. And Brooke was healed and she had the answers. Thank you for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with Laura McLeod. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Laura McLeod, please visit her Instagram page at Laura underscore McLeod, M-A-C-L-E-O-D. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.